I just wanted to earn some applause early without doing anything at all. It's great. <laughs> Welcome, friends. Let's try it again. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you. How are you? Great. You're doing great. That's right. I don't care what anyone says. Greg Aitchison and I are still friends. I pay him well every month for that. Just kidding. I don't pay him anything. I was a youth minister. <laughs> I don't have any money. <laughs> youth minister with seven kids. You think I have money? No chance. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, let's see. Uh, Rich mentioned this earlier, but um, I know that most of us uh, li- just lived a normal week of our lives, right? Whatever, and by normal, I mean probably nothing is normal in your life, right? Just like the rest of us. Uh, maybe you went to work, maybe you were home with kids, uh, maybe your work is the kids, and that's even harder than going to work, except you don't get paid for it, so it's even extra special. Um, so I, I, I want to give you permission, before we do anything else, to, to acknowledge what you are leaving behind in your life as you come to winter weekend, um, and not to forget about it in the sense that you're not allowed to think about it. Because Lord knows that there are things that God has to say about the day-to-day normal stuff of your life that's not very exciting, but it's important because it's yours and he gave it to you. Um, but maybe in the way that the stuff that you're leaving behind at home doesn't need to be maybe the usual kind of obstacle or struggle to a conversation with God that it is here. Um, and the reason I say that, the first reason, is that how many of you are parents and how many of you have, have uh, children of your own? Okay. How many of you have your children here and they're over in that other building right now? Okay. Uh, I just want to acknowledge, first of all, that they're not here right now. Yeah, right? <laughs> now, here's the thing. I love my children and you love your children, but there are things that you and I can do and even things that you and I have the time and the space to think about when we're not being nagged every five seconds for somebody that's hungry, right? Uh, And even if you don't have children of your own at home, if they're old and gone or if you don't have kids yet, you have demands in your life that demand your attention minute to minute, day to day, right? Um, The Lord has things to say about that this weekend, um, but you've got the gift of a little bit of distance from them right now. You've got the gift of a little bit of objectivity, a little space, maybe even to see those things more clearly, okay? I want to give you a glimpse of what I'm talking about. This was a few years ago, um, but it'll give you a little bit of a window into my life to give you a sense of the things that I don't have with me this weekend, and I can see with a little more clarity, hopefully. Um, This was probably, well, I can do some math. It was about four years ago. uh, We were having a normal dinner on a Tuesday night. Nothing exciting, no birthday, nothing, no big deal. Um, What's important for you to know is that my bride, Kenna, was born in Honolulu, and (laughs) by the way, side note, she's the crazy person that wanted to live in Minnesota, right? I'm from Iowa, and I met a girl who was the love of my life, and she was born in Honolulu, and she grew up in Australia and Florida, and I said, this is my meal ticket out of here. Let's go, baby. Where are we going to live? And she said, Minnesota. I was like, for the love of Peter, what have you done to me? My God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, But she brought me here, and unfortunately, like many things, she was right, and I love it, and now we'll never leave. So, um... But she was born in Honolulu. Her grandmother lived in Honolulu still four years ago. And like any good grandma, some of you are maybe like this, uh, she would send us care packages full of stuff that our children don't need, right? All the time, 
for no reason, things that we would never give them, junk food and toys, and really kind of, this is a little niche, but funny, awesome junk food that you can only get in Hawaii, like weird Asian candy from my Korean great-grandmother that I can't even read what's on the label, but the kids think it's fun because it's weird. It doesn't say Hershey's. So they would, she would send these care packages. One day, on this particular Tuesday, four years ago, we had four children on the outside, right? So we had uh, Ella Claire, Xavier, Trey, and Damien, uh, and they were on the outside. We had two other additional children on the inside because Kenna was pregnant with our twins at that time. And so we had all eight of us were at dinner, <laughs> two of them warm and comfortable, the rest of us around the table. And we opened this care package at the end of dinner. And um, out of the care package came all kinds of ridiculous things and, and trans fats and stuff that we don't need. And then we found these four little toys, okay? I need to visualize with me on this, okay? They're little toys about yay big, right? And with each little toy, um, came a straw. Now, each toy was a different animal, right? Um, so there are little animals about this big, but you got a picture with me because it was like, it was as if the animals were each hugging a palm tree and like climbing it, right? Because they had their arms around like this and there was a hole between their arms and their legs were like that too. And what you did see was you took a straw and you put it through the arms and legs of the animal. So they're like hugging the straw, okay? And then when you turn on the animal and you drink through the straw, it made the sound of that animal. You're not appreciating how amazing this was. Listen, my dinner table is always a zoo, but it was a real zoo that night, man. It was glorious. There was like a lion roaring over here. There was a, a giraffe. I don't even know what a giraffe does. Does a giraffe make noise? Probably not. It just run into trees. Um, there was a menagerie of joy around the table. My children were laughing. They weren't arguing. They weren't whining. They weren't complaining about the very healthy, delicious dinner that we had prepared for them. They were just enjoying the moment, and it was glorious. And I, as a good millennial father. I'm 40 years old and I hit the millennial thing by one year. So I'm going to own it. I love it because I love telling the 29 year olds that I'm a millennial too. And it makes them want to explode. It's the best ever. So I, as a good millennial father, do what we do. And I was videoing because I'm going to put it on social media and show them how great and wonderful my family is. And it was beautiful and glorious for 30 seconds. And then things began to happen. Thing number one is that Damien, who was about one and a half, two at the time, he dropped his little animal toy straw thing under the table, right? So he goes down to get it. We're all still drinking, laughing, animal sounds. And he picks it up and he stands up, bang, and bashes his head on the underside of the table, okay? Now, Damien is one of the kids that maybe you have had children like this, that when he gets hurt, he gets hurt, yes, but he more than that gets embarrassed. And he doesn't like the attention. He doesn't want people looking at him. So he got hurt and he got angry. So he throws himself down on the floor, starts throwing a tantrum. Now, I don't care what anyone tells you, I am a good father, at least 60% of the time, all right? So I went to go scoop up my child. I was going to comfort my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I pick him up and he is mad. He's flailing and he's pissed and he and I go to pick him up. Before I even get there, he throws himself backward, bang, bashes his head again on the floor right behind him. So now he's really hurt. And I have a 5% concern that he has a concussion. And then I'm going through the weird rabbit hole in my brain of like, do two-year-olds get concussions? I feel like their skull's kind of squishy to not let that happen. I don't really know. But as I'm doing this, I'm going to pick up my son and I pick him up and now he's mad. He's hurt and he's angry and he's flailing and mad and tantrumy. And he takes the straw that he has just picked up off the ground and sticks it directly into my right eyeball. Yeah, that's the sound, right? Yeah. 
And I mean hard, you guys. Like, like to the point where the first reaction was, I will never see again. Like Bartimaeus, Jesus, save your son, because I'll never see out of this eye again. So I am holding my angry son in my left arm. I'm holding my right eye into my head with my right hand, and I am trying desperately to not cheat, teach my children new vocabulary words. Do you know what I'm saying? So I put Damien down, and I'm slamming my hand against the wall of the dining room not to swear in front of my children. Now, again, I don't care what anyone says. I very rarely punch the walls of my house, okay? So Trey, who was about three at the time, sees this, and he gets really stressed out and kind of scared because daddy's hurting the house, right? Uh, so he starts crying and just adds to the cacophony of what's happening. In the midst of this insanity, Ella Claire, who was about eight or so at the time, she very quietly, but in the voice that makes you pay attention, goes, mommy. See what she's doing, see, is she's drawing our attention to Xavier, who was about six or so at the time, and the fact that he had had so much to eat that night and was so stressed out by World War III going on around him that he had started to gag and lurch at the dining room table. So I take my hand off of my eye, pick up my son, carry him to the bathroom, where he immediately, immediately throws up all over the top of the new toilet that I just installed with these two hands three days before, and it was so clean, you guys. It was so clean. Not in the toilet, by the way. I, I said on, on the toilet, like a crazy person, right? Like splash factor, the whole thing, right? <sighs> At the end of the day, Damien did not have a concussion, <laughs> to our knowledge. <laughs> it was not documented. Uh, Trey does not have any kind of like overwhelming PTSD from that situation. He understands that daddy was in pain and he, he's not angry at the house. Xavier was not sick. He was just overfed. And then he was not full at all in, in a moment. Uh, Ella Claire was the MVP of the whole night because in the midst of us cleaning up this whole disaster, she cleaned up from dinner and got everything kind of like squared away. I am not blind, it turns out. The healing hand of the Lord touched my face and we are good to go. Uh, the twins were the happiest of all because they were just like bouncing around a little more than usual. It was like louder on the outside, but not much frankly. Um, it was the best ever. And we sat down that night at nine o'clock, Kenna and I, and we thought to ourselves after laughing for 20 straight minutes, what in the world has the Lord called us to? <laughs> what was he thinking, giving us two weak, flawed sinners this kind of a job, right? I don't know if you parents have ever had that kind of an experience, right? The, the first time I felt that tangibly as an adult was when we left the hospital after Ella Claire was born, our first child. And I, I like got the you know, car seat out of the box and I buckled it in and I, I was pretty sure it was secure. It was, it was fine. And we get out to the car and the nurses help me get her buckled in. And then they say, all right, bye. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't clarify. I don't, I've never done this before. This is new to me, right? Everything I know about parenting, you nurses taught me in the past 48 hours, actually. So you're all coming with me. I don't know if you know, I don't know if insurance covers that, but we're going to do it, okay? Just don't tell anyone. It's fine. Get in the car. Um, it was this overwhelming sense of responsibility and like the terror of duty, Right? In a way that I knew how important this work was that I had been invited into, both in marriage and in parenting, um, you have situations like that, right? The, the things in your life that are so beautiful and so important that they take on this weight and this gravity um, that can feel overwhelming at times. Uh, maybe it's the, the, the gravity of a marriage, of knowing what it means to care for someone else and to serve someone else in good and in bad in good times and in sickness. 
in richness and poverty. All those things that we agree to when we get married, and we have actually no idea what we're agreeing to, right? <laughs> uh, the gravity and the beauty of parenting, what it means to be given a soul in a human body and to say, you know, it, it's your job to love this person and to teach them to love our father as well. Um, if it's the work that you do, whatever work you do, if it's connected to ministry, if it's a secular job, all of it is contributing to the well-being of God's humanity. So what it means to be a good manager, to be a good servant, to be a good employee, to be a good leader, to be a good um, leader of others and influencer of others. All of us have influence. And that influence means that you have power, and that power can come with a lot of responsibility. Um, this weekend, you and I had the chance to reflect on some of the ways that we're being called to allow the Lord to be even more effective in our lives, to open ourselves up, to let the power of the Holy Spirit work through us even more than we have already. Uh, like Pete said, my name is Pat Millay, and I'm just so blessed to be here with you. Um, I, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Alabama where I learned to love sweet tea and grits. And then I moved up here and I ordered tea in a restaurant and they gave me some sewage water that had no sugar in it and I didn't know what to do with it. It was disgusting. But some of you may be like that and that's fine. You can do what you want. I'm not here to judge. Uh, I moved to Illinois where I learned to love the St. Louis Cardinals and dinosaurs because I was like five. So just go with it, right? Uh, I, then I mostly grew up in Iowa where I learned to love corn and pigs mostly for the ways that they would become ribs that I could then consume on my dinner table. Uh, but I grew up in Iowa, went to Notre Dame for undergrad, stuck around for graduate school in theology, worked for 15 years in youth ministry between Indianapolis and up here in the Twin Cities, and uh, got married in 2009 to the most beautiful woman in the world. And that's not an insult to any of you lovely ladies. I'm just very biased, and I get that. Uh, we have seven children, Ella, Claire, Xavier, Trey, Damian, Juliana, Cora, Lucia, uh, we had four children in a normal amount of time, and that was great and healthy and beautiful. Oh, there they are. Yes. This is our Christmas picture. It's very real life, which is, I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, and then after that, we had twins. God said, here's two more right now. And Kenna started praying immediately in the ultrasound room, which is a very good Kenna thing to do. I did the very dad thing, where my first thought was counting seats in the car and rooms in the house. And I was like, okay, we will all technically, legally still fit today. We're going to be fine, right? And then God was like, hold my holy water. Because he uh, <laughs> said, uh, you're going to have another daughter. And she was born, Lucia, our little one, was born four days before the twins' first birthday. Yes, that was the sound I made too in the ultrasound. Yeah. So if you're counting, that's three babies in one year. And if you're doing your math right, that is a lot of babies. So I, as a 37-year-old man, bought a 12-passenger van. That's my life. What's up? Yeah. Uh, I took it to get the tires uh, switched over to winter tires one time. And the guy said, oh, do you have this for work or something? And I said, oh, it's work. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I just don't get paid for it, actually. <laughs> I pay a lot of money to do this job, it turns out, actually. Um, so this is our Christmas picture. As you can tell, Cora has no interest whatsoever. I'm shocked she's in the frame, to be honest with you. Uh, but this is our beautiful family. Uh, we look um, even better there than we do almost every other day of the week. So that's great. Good. Um, let's do this real quick. How many of you are married? Hands up. Cool. Great. How many of you are here with the person that you're married to? How many of you are sitting next to that person right now? 
How many of you intentionally sat somewhere? Uh, just kidding. Don't answer that. No, it's <laughs> how many of you have children? Cool. How many of your children are uh, grown and gone and they don't live in your house anymore? Cool. How many of your children are grown and they still live in your house? That's okay. Cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a targeted answer. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> Oh, golly. How many of you, uh, let's see, grew up in Minnesota? You were born here, raised here, have stuck around. Cool. How many of you are transplants from somewhere else? Cool. How many of you are transplants and you still have the accent that the rest of us do, you just picked it up later in life? Anyone? How many of you probably do, but you don't want to admit it, so you keep your hand down because you don't want to, yeah. Once, like, maybe five years after living here, I said, oh, yeah. And then they went, ah! <laughs> It's happening! <laughs> it seeps in. We can't stand it, right? Oh, golly. Um, five seconds to pause and reflect to yourself for a moment. Why are you here? <laughs> Throughout the course of the weekend, I'll ask that. In, in the bigger sense, like, what is the purpose that God has put you and I onto this earth to fulfill that no other individual can fulfill so that's why he made one of you. But I mean in the more particular sense now. Why are you here this weekend? Um, some of you, as we saw, have never been here before. This is your first time. For some of you, you've been coming here for 20 years, 25 years. Why are you here this weekend? And it's okay to be honest about that. If it's to really grow in your faith and to become more connected with the Lord, if this is a, a key weekend for you to reconnect with your faith, that's beautiful, that's great. If the reason that you're here is to have three hours where your children are safe and you are not with them, that is a good starting point. That's okay. God can work with that, right? If, if the purpose of being here is just good time with your family, and the faith stuff is fine, but that's not the real reason, you know? Listen, God has started with way worse motivations than whatever you and I are bringing today, right? It really helps, though, to be honest, to be real with God. Why are you here this weekend? I'm convinced throughout all of scripture and through examples in my own life that God can work miracles with sinners and weak human beings who are just willing to be honest, even if the thing that they're honest about is really shameful. I'm also convinced that people who are not honest with God are the kind of people that God is not able to do much good work in because they will not allow it oftentimes. So I want to give you permission, before we do anything else this weekend, to just be honest this weekend. To whatever extent you're comfortable, to whatever extent God is maybe inviting you into, and maybe even a step beyond your comfort level, to be real. Certainly to be real with God in prayer, and maybe even to be real with one another, with your spouse, with your kids, in a way that's appropriate and makes sense. Maybe even with total strangers that you're going to get to know this weekend, to be real with them. And to watch the way that God can do miracles in the heart of someone who is honest with him. The truth is that God loves you perfectly and completely exactly where you are today, right now. On January 14th, 2023, he loves you perfectly, completely. He could not love you more in this moment. No matter where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you, he could not possibly love you more. And it's also true that God loves you too much to leave you where you are today. He loves you too much to leave you here because he has even greater graces, 
even greater blessings, even greater missions to call you to down the road. So where are you now, and are you willing to invite God in in a slightly deeper way this weekend to see where he wants you to go, where he's going to take you? This weekend, I'm really excited to introduce you to one of my best friends. Uh, Not anyone who's here, although many of my best friends are in this room. I mean a best friend that I've never met in my life. Uh, One of my best friends is a guy named Clive Staples Lewis. It's a guy named C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and if you're not, you're going to meet him this weekend. C.S. Lewis is one of my best friends, and I've never met him. He was an author. Most of uh, you would be familiar from his work, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he wrote a million other books besides that. The framework of our weekend is going to be a conversation with C.S. Lewis, who himself was raised Christian, fell away from the faith, and was a revert, kind of a reconvert back to Christianity. So it's going to be kind of a conversion conversation, if you will, with C.S. Lewis, using some of his writings, some of his passages to be starting points for your prayer and your reflection, your conversation this weekend. I want to say two things about that right off the bat. Number one, you are not at school this weekend. There's no homework. I know you just got given a handout that has a reading on it. Just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay, right? You're not responsible for homework, and it's not going to be something that's over your or my head. You're smarter than me anyway, so if I can handle it, so can you, right? So it's not school. It's, it's an opportunity to walk with someone. And number two, all of it is a mere suggestion. Uh, if something that C.S. Lewis says this weekend is something that you struggle with, wrestle with, or downright disagree with, if something that I say this weekend is something that you struggle with, wrestle with, downright disagree with. Those are all great things to take to God in prayer. To take to God in prayer and to say, listen, God, this ugly guy talking to us said this thing this weekend. I think it's nuts. What do you think, right? I'm going to try my best to not say crazy things this weekend, but sometimes I just can't help myself, right? All of it, though, is a good starting point for prayer. So this is all a suggestion to allow for good conversation between you and the people that you love, starting with God, and you and the people that you don't even know yet, but you're going to love by Monday, right? So we're going to walk through a few different passages. A little background about C.S. Lewis before we dive into this one. He was born in Belfast in Northern Ireland in 1898. He fell away from the faith as a teenager. So many of us who maybe had that experience in our lives or have had children of our own who have strayed from the faith as teens, we know the experience. Uh, He had one very influential mentor, like a tutor, who was a staunch skeptic atheist who drew him away from his faith. And then through a lot of different reasons, C.S. Lewis came back to his faith. One of the main reasons is when he was best friends with J.R.R. Tolkien of the Lord of the Rings fame. And Tolkien and their other friend, um, his brother, Warren Lewis, they were reading a lot of different Christian writings one day, and he all of a sudden realized that he believed in God again. (laughs) Here's what he said. He wrote to a friend, you must picture me alone in that room in modeling college in Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. (laughs) 
That was his starting point. That's how he came back to knowing who God was. But he still wasn't Christian, actually. He just believed there was a God. He wrote to a friend, Hugo Dyson, one time. He said, terrible things are happening to me. (laughs) He said, the spirit, or the real I, is showing an alarming tendency to become much more personal and is taking the offensive and behaving just like God. (laughs) You'd better come on Monday at the latest, or I may have entered a monastery. (laughs) I love his wit. He's hilarious. He's great. Um, After he had a long talk with uh, Dyson and his other friend, Tolkien, he said... Uh, he, was on, he was riding with a friend on a motorcycle to the zoo. All of his buddies, these like college students, were going to the zoo. And he wrote after that, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one Sunday morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but think for a second. When, if someone were to ask you, when did you begin to realize that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is your Savior, what, what does that process look like for you? For many of us, maybe there's one moment, boom, I can think of it like Saul became Paul. Boom, there's that time, that situation. For many of us, it was like, I don't know, somewhere in those 10 years, you know, it's a gradual thing. I just kind of woke up one day and was like, holy cow, I am a Christian. Look at that. <laughs> Who knew? What was that like for you? After that, C.S. Lewis wrote a ton of books, a ton of talks, and uh, we're going to go through some of those this weekend. The first of which is one that you've got right in front of you. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Miracles later on in his writing career. This book is a really interesting book. It is intensely philosophical. If you're going to start reading C.S. Lewis, first of all, I would very much love that for your sake. And number two, don't start with this one. It is very intense. It's heady, it's philosophical, and then, inexplicably, two-thirds of the way through a deep, heady, academic, philosophical undermining of the way that miracles are possible because of the nature of God's goodness, he wrote the thing that you and I are going to read through together. In the middle of this academic work, he breaks into this beautiful, heartfelt, intensely personal explanation of what this God is like. On that yellow sheet in front of you, it's from an article uh, that someone else wrote about it. Just the block in the middle is what we're worried about today. I'm going to read with you, and then obviously you can take this sheet with you, and you can meditate, reflect, and pray on it throughout the course of the weekend and the rest of your life. He comes out of a section where he's talking about um, the idea of pantheism, which is the idea that God isn't personal. God is just kind of a thing out there that is connected to everything. So think of like the force in Star Wars, right? The force is like a great image of pantheism. And C.S. Lewis is trying to get at that and say, that's not exactly who God is. And he picks up that vein with this passage. He says, men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God. I do not wonder. Here lies the deepest taproot of pantheism and of the objection to traditional imagery. It was hated not at bottom because it pictured him as man, but because it pictured him as king or even as warrior. The pantheist God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There's no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. If he were the truth, then we could really say that all the Christian images of kingship were a historical accident of which our religion ought to be cleansed. 
It is with a shock that we discover them to be indispensable. Now, here's where he takes the shift. He moves from this thought experiment about a personal God, and he says to you and I, you have had a shock like that before in connection with smaller matters. When the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes beside you in the darkness, so here, the shock of life comes up at the, at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we have been following. It is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed. The hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly, was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, quote, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. So it is a sort of Rubicon. One goes across or not. But if one does, there's no manner of security against miracles. One may be in for anything. When the line pulls at your hand. What stands out to you about that kind of an idea? About a God who chases and pursues you personally, individually, desperately out of love. Not like a police officer pursues a criminal, not like that. Like a father pursues his son or daughter when they're about to run into the street, right? That the further we get from our God, the more danger we are in in our lives. So we have a God who pursues. What does it mean to you and I to, to know that kind of a God? And have you had an experience in your life of that kind of a God? A way of putting it would be, have you allowed God to find you? <laughs> have you allowed yourself to be caught at some point in your life? God pursues. We humans are really good at running away. Have you allowed yourself to be caught? So often we have to think we, we think we have to go out and find God. We're looking for God. We're searching for God. Friends, God has found us. All we have to do is stop playing hide and seek and just allow our dad to wrap us, wrap us in his arms. That's all we have to do. Again, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. If you've had an experience like that 30 years ago, but you haven't felt things like that for decades, or if you had an experience like that last weekend, I don't know. It's something that I still struggle with day to day. My very first one was as a sophomore in high school. Now, I grew up in a Catholic family at a Catholic school, and I was really good at doing Catholic things, which at my, what I thought at the time meant we go to church, we don't talk for an hour, we do the readings, we do the motions, and then we leave, and we don't talk about Jesus for six and a half more days. 
That's what I thought Catholicism was. I was desperately wrong, but that's what I thought it was, right? So then when my buddy Mark comes to me on a Tuesday, sophomore year, and says to me, hey, you want to come to church tonight? I laughed in his face in chemistry class. I said, ha, church, bro, it's Tuesday. Don't know if you heard, but we Catholics, what we do, see, we go to church on Sunday, and then we don't talk about it anymore. That's it, right? So get out of my face with this Tuesday church. And like any good friend, he said to me, shut up, you're coming. And I said, okay, fine. Because frankly, I just got my license and I was looking for any reason to drive anywhere and that's fine. So I drove to church. That was as good as any other place, no problem. So I drove to church that night and a lot of things happened. First of all, strangers that I had never met in my life were welcoming and nice to me. And that was strange in my life. I was not a very cool kid. I know Greg would tell you differently. He thought I was awesome, but I was not a very cool kid. I was a people pleaser because I wanted to be well-liked in high school and not many people did like me. And those are the people that knew me. So then I go to a building full of people with strangers and they're giving me high fives and making up secret handshakes. And I'm like, what is wrong with you weirdos? But it felt nice, right? We go into a room, kind of like this, maybe a couple hundred people, I don't know. And they're singing songs I'd never heard in my natural history. But I'm trying to play along and play the game, right? Maybe some of you were like this, right? Catching every fifth word. Jesus, nope. (laughs) Pray, grace. Hallelujah, (laughs) whatever. But I loved it, and it was beautiful, right? And then youth minister guy gets up, youth pastor guy, and he talks about what he called wimpy Christians. He said wimpy Christians are the kind of Christians who go to church on Sunday, and they act for all the world as if they believe everything that is discussed on Sunday. They, They do the motions, they know the responses, they know the prayers, they sing the songs, they do the dance, right? And then they leave the church building, And they go about their week, and not one moment of their day would tell you that that person believed anything that happened on Sunday. Friends, I was Catholic. I was Christian, technically. God did not make a single difference in my life. Not one. I didn't pray. I didn't go to God with my thoughts, my feelings, my requests, with gratitude. He didn't affect my decisions, my priorities, my options, nothing. So this guy gets up and talks about wimpy Christians, and for the first time in my life, in a room of 200 people, I knew that God had found me alone, individually, personally, intentionally, sitting in a room that he had found me. The Holy Spirit had singled me out. Nobody else knew this, but I did. He was talking to me. Remember what I told Mark? Dude, we go to church on Sundays, and then we don't talk about it for six more days, right? That was my life. The phrase that Jesus would use for somebody like me is a hypocrite, right? On the outside, I made it look really good, but I was a whitewashed tomb, man. I was dead in my faith on the inside. There was nothing happening between me and God outside of a lot of performance and show. God found me that day. The story of my life since 1998 has been the story of the Israelites, of people running from God. (laughs) God says, I love you, and I say, I know. And then I run off and I do whatever I want oftentimes, right? And then God continues to chase me and find me. The first thing that I'm gonna ask you to be honest about this weekend is that circumstance in your life. Have you felt the shock of the true, infinite, 
mysterious, unthinkable, unfathomable God finding you in your beautiful humility, in your beautiful simplicity? Have you experienced the shock of God finding you with his love as his precious son or daughter? If you have, are there ways that you can recall what that experience is like? And if you haven't, may I offer a simple invitation to crack the door open this weekend to God. God does not need a lot, but God is also not going to force your will. God is very polite. He's never going to force you to do anything. But believe me when I say that if you open the door just a crack and let the light into that dark room just for a moment, that God can do amazing and powerful things with just a tiny opportunity. In some of the time that we have in small groups later on, I'm going to invite you with your group to the extent that you're comfortable to go back to that place. And the reason why is because Jesus shows us the power of going back to the place where we met him for the first time. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus rises from the dead, Mary Magdalene and the other women go to visit the tomb. Because like any good faithful disciples, they're going to go spend time with Jesus, even if they don't know he's there anymore. And here's what the end of the Gospel of Matthew says, chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he was risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Now listen. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great and joy and fear and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hail. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, for there they will see me. I don't know if you know this, but Galilee is a meaningless town in most ways. It's a little podunk out in the middle of nowhere village. Galilee doesn't mean anything except for the fact that that is where they first met Christ. In this key moment of their lives, when they were at, this, at the very thread of doubt, where they had almost given up hope, they didn't know whether the resurrection was real yet, Jesus says to them, go back to the place where you first met me. Go back to the place where I found you and I called you into a place of purpose and joy and peace. Go there, and I'm going to show you what I have for you next. Friends, the invitation this morning is in the moments where you and I feel like we don't know what's next, in the moments of confusion, of anger, of doubt, of distress, even just confusion, to go back to Galilee, to go back to that place in our lives where we had that first initial shock that first encounter, or to invite him to find us today for the first time. 
all the amazing opportunities, all the great things that we have to do this weekend, they're all based on that opportunity to encounter Jesus again in the place that he met us first. I can't tell you how excited I am to be with you this weekend. I'm going to be able to speak with you a lot more. And again, please, if you do nothing else, allow anything that the Holy Spirit says through me or my good friend Clive to be springboards for you to have great conversations with your Lord, great conversations with your spouse or your kids, with your best friends, great conversations with strangers that you meet this weekend. And we're going to have a great journey together. Okay? God bless you guys. Thank you.